KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Fire crews from Nevada and Arizona are joining the battle against nearly two dozen major wildfires burning, mostly in Northern California. Cal Fire says its resources are stretched thin, and this fire season, fewer prison inmate crews are available because of the coronavirus, which has swept through prisons and prompted early releases. At a news conference Wednesday, California Governor Gavin Newsom insisted steps have been taken to maximize the state's ability to fight fires. We've been putting billions, quite literally billions of dollars uh, over the course of the last number of years into procuring uh, more equipment, uh, establishing even stronger relationships uh, with FEMA uh, and our partners uh, up and down the state of California and the exceptional mutual aid system that I'll put up against any state anywhere in the world. Newsom says California is an incredibly resilient state and that we will get through this moment in time as we have others. Seven elementary schools are cleared to reopen under the state's waiver process. The names were submitted to the state and, after three days on the county's website, the county heard no objections back from the state. San Diego County Public Health Officer Dr. Wilma Wooten says more schools could be approved this week. So as we submit, um, and if three days transpires and we don't hear back from the state, then we will post uh, those names. San Diego County just recently got off the state's watch list, and if we continue to report low case rates, schools serving higher grade levels could be allowed to reopen September 1st. In addition to reopening schools, Governor Gavin Newsom promised the state will give businesses some guidance on how they can reopen, but not until next week. We'll be making public next week the details uh, of our strategies as it relates to reopening when we see the data stabilized based on new criteria, and we will assert a framework of clarity. But at a county press conference, County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher urged patience. Uh, That does not mean that next week everything will reopen, but we are working with the state uh, to get the guidance. San Diego County could be placed back on the state's watch list if it exceeded any one of six metrics for three consecutive days. Those include changes in the case rate and an increase in the number of hospitalized patients. As the heat wave burns on, the city of San Diego opened five new cool zones on Wednesday. Tavy Davis is with the City Heights Recreation Center and Mid-City Gym. What we offer here besides the big cool zone is um, just a clean, safe area for the public to come if they don't have a cool zone to go to. Uh, we are offering water and, of course, um, going by county guidelines you know, to protect everyone as far as protocols. If you want to go to a cool zone, expect to have your temperature taken at the door, and you must wear a mask. The cool zones are open daily from noon to 5 p.m. We have a full list of cool zones on our website at kpbs.org. Day three of the Democratic National Convention concluded last night with speeches by former President Barack Obama and an address by the vice presidential nominee, 
former California Attorney General Kamala Harris. And we're on for day four tonight with Joe Biden accepting his party's nomination. Be sure to tune in to KPBS Radio starting at 6 p.m. or catch it this evening on KPBS Television. If you miss it, you can always go online at kpbs.org to get the latest recap. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Thursday, August 20th, and you're listening to San Diego News Matters from KPBS News. Stay with me for more of the local news you need to start your day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. San Diego County's child care providers who've seen their costs go up and their revenue go down because of the pandemic can now apply for a little relief. The county is offering small grants using federal CARES Act funding. KPBS's Claire Tregesser reports. The county is planning to spend $25 million to help existing home daycares and larger child care centers with costs related to COVID-19. Many have cut their class sizes and taken on extra cleaning and staffing costs, and so they've taken a financial hit. Some say they are in danger of going out of business. In-home daycares can apply for grants of around $3,000, while larger child care centers can get between $100 and $175 per child. Pamela Gray-Payton is the vice president of the San Diego Foundation, which is distributing the grants. What we are really hoping this child care grant will allow is to create more space for children um, because families are able to return to work. And it's really our hope that even those facilities right now who may be working at minimum with two or three students or children will be able to actually increase their capacity. She says the money can be spent on almost anything. What are the needs within your indoor space in terms of cleaning and supplies? Um, you can use the grant to pay for the rent on your space. You can use the uh, grant to pay for staffing. Providers can begin applying for the grants on Monday at sdfoundation.org slash childcaregrants. They will accept applications for 10 days and then will begin awarding the money within a few weeks. That was KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser. Businesses across San Diego County are adjusting to outdoor operations. But this week, there's a new challenge, record-breaking heat and humidity. London Nail Spa in Point Loma has only been open outside for a few days now. Owner Cindy Fawn says the heat makes doing nails tough. The chemical when we use like, you know, like for nail polish, it dries really fast. So it's it hard to work with. After being closed for three months and unsure if her business would survive, Fawn says for now she can deal with the bad weather. This week, Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill requiring all students in the state university system to take an ethnic studies course in order to graduate. California State Assemblywoman Shirley Weber told KPBS Midday Edition that the new requirement will help students understand 
and engage in a conversation about issues regarding race and ethnicity in America. We have to really continue to grapple with this issue and education, a broad education that really engages students in that conversation is paramount. When asked if the legislature should be shaping school curriculum, Weber said lawmakers have a responsibility to, quote, respond to educational needs. The ethnic studies course becomes mandatory for students who graduate starting in the 2024-25 academic year. Indoor dining is still banned across the state of California, leading many restaurants to take their business outside. In City Heights, some Vietnamese restaurants are not only moving outdoors, but changing menus to match their new setting. KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler has our story. On El Cajon Boulevard, the restaurant New Yi has completely altered its menu to offer Vietnamese-style street food, more typically found at a night market. Beef, chicken, and seafood sizzle on skewers on a large grill outside the restaurant until late. The El Cajon Boulevard Improvement Association has been helping local restaurants transition outdoors. Julie Tran is a board member with the El Cajon BIA. It feels right at home when you're sitting out there. And I I was just thinking sitting out there that I just saved two grand from having to travel to Vietnam to experience this. I can just drive to City Heights uh, to get that feel of being in Asia, sitting outside, nice weather, good food, you know, have uh, friends, family around. Tran hopes that business owners in City Heights don't give up on outdoor dining when they're finally allowed to operate indoors again. That was KPBS reporter Max Revelin-Nadler. The nonprofit Veterans Village has a new president and CEO after Kim Mitchell left in November. The organization runs programs for drug treatment and homeless veterans. CEO Akila Templeton sat down with KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. Here's that interview. So Akila Templeton, you're the new president and CEO of Veterans Village. You're the first non-veteran to run Veterans Village. A venerable organization. Yes. It's been around, founded by Vietnam vets. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to spend your life working with Mm -hmm. veterans? Over the course of my career, I've worked with several populations who have experienced homelessness, who have experienced poverty and and hunger. But the veteran piece, I think, just really struck a chord with me because of the the irony there, right? And um, And that that irony is what? For me, the irony is just in you know, the reality that we actually have homeless veterans in America. Are you able to do everything? Uh, Drug treatment, um, outreach to homeless? Are you able to keep every one of your programs up and running right now? Uh, I think that we are doing what we can the best that we can. And so I think there are certain, you know, elements of all of those things that you've mentioned that have certainly uh, survived. Uh, We are doing outreach. We are you know, providing groups, but we're doing it differently. And so uh, we may not have a situation where you can have, you know, 10, 20, 30 veterans uh, uh, in a space, but we're, we're finding ways to do it. You were running a temporary shelter on, on Point Loma that's since shut down. Uh, mm-hmm. Are we going to see this Veterans Village changing? Uh, are we going to see uh, a new direction in the mm-hmm. next few years? Well, you know, certainly I think all organizations, uh, 
experience some level of change and evolution, right? And that's a good thing, right? It just means that um, the needs are changing, the demands are changing, and it's up to us to adapt. Does that take time? Yes. Were we already headed down that road? Yes. Uh, but then the unexpected happened, right? COVID happened. And so um, it may take us a little longer. <laughs> so there are a number of veterans that are housed right now over mm -hmm. at the convention center because mm -hmm. of, of COVID-19. Yes. Uh, what role are you playing in trying to get a more permanent situation for those veterans? Yeah. So, uh, so very soon I'll, I'll take my first visit down to the convention center uh, to actually see uh, what's happening firsthand. But I can tell you that even though this is only week three, that was actually my priority coming into the door. And so uh, we've been working diligently uh, over the past couple weeks to um, collaborate with uh, other agencies, with landlords, uh, we're looking at some of our programs, and we think that we have some, some pretty solid options for uh, moving some of our veterans uh, from the temporary shelter envi environment into permanent housing. And what's the biggest impediment there? Do you have enough landlords who are willing to take those fits? Well, you know, I think the challenges are the same everywhere, right? There is uh, a low inventory of affordable housing, there are eligibility requirements, there's bureaucracy and paperwork and, uh, and all of that. And so uh, each situation is different. We are certainly looking at each case, uh, each individual, each veteran. You're not full here right now. Is this a place where those veterans could be going? Uh, this is an option. And so actually we've uh, done plenty of outreach at the shelter. We are working with veterans to determine uh, if this is the best fit for them. And so for those veterans uh, willing to come and, and enroll in some of our existing programs, we have certainly presented them with that opportunity. Thank you so much for talking to us. No problem. That was Akila Templeton, the new head of Veterans Village, speaking with KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. And stay with us because they had one van that was, you know, they might have gotten a few people in, but not enough to yeah. take care of everybody that was out in the parking lot. Part three of the Older and Overlooked series comes to us from our partners at KQED. The series is an investigation into the challenges faced by long-term care homes during both a pandemic and a now raging wildfire season. That's up next after this break. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon. Hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com.
Fast-moving wildfires are burning right now in Northern California, forcing thousands to flee their homes. KQED has been investigating the risk wildfire poses to medically frail Californians who live in skilled nursing facilities. They've found that a quarter of nursing homes are in parts of the state at heightened risk for wildfire. The most medically frail older Californians live in those skilled nursing facilities and the coronavirus has upended their lives. Many of those homes were ill-prepared for the risk posed by the coronavirus and are not ready for yet another looming disaster at the same time. KQED science reporter Molly Peterson continues our series, Older and Overlooked, by examining the regulations that are supposed to protect those patients. Last October, a brush fire was fast coming toward the nursing home where Bob Hanna's wife lives and the smoke and the wind was blowing really bad. Crystal Ridge Care Center is atop a hill in rural Grass Valley. Staffers were bringing patients to the parking lot, and Bob started to wonder how they were going to get everyone out. Because they had one van that was, you know, they might have gotten a few people in, but not enough to take care of everybody that was out in the parking lot. In a wildfire, the first plan at Crystal Ridge is to shelter in place. If that isn't safe, staff would shuttle residents to a sister facility nearby. They asked visitors like Bob to leave, and as he did, he thought of his wife, Lara Lee. I wanted to make sure that she was out, you know, no problem. Bob is 80, still plays softball. Lara Lee can't walk independently. She's got MS. Before the pandemic, Bob would pick her up for day trips. Well, I have a van that has a ramp on it. So he turned back to pitch in as more brush caught flame. Crews put that fire out quickly. Federal regulations now demand that skilled nursing facilities prepare and practice for hazards exactly like this one. Wildfires, hurricanes, and yes, pandemics. Part of why is climate change. Water flooded into St. Rita's nursing home outside New Orleans, drowning 35 residents. After Hurricane Katrina in 2005, federal watchdogs recommended better emergency preparedness rules, like identifying hazards a nursing home might face, training, knowing who to call for help, and telling families about the plan. Katrina was a wake-up call for all of us. Industry trade groups fought to weaken and delay those regulations. It was 12 years before they took effect. Meanwhile, natural disasters became more common. Over and over, Gulf Coast storms have left wheelchairs piled up, caked with mud after flooding. After the campfire in 2018, Bay Area paramedic Jimmy Pearson remembers a similar scene outside a Paradise Care home. Seven or eight just empty wheelchairs in the driveway. So you knew what happened there was, it was grab, go, grab, go, grab, go. California has over 1,200 skilled nursing facilities. Only Texas is even close. The State Department of Public Health oversees these nursing homes and inspects them using federal and state standards. KQED investigated how ready they are for disasters. We found that over a two-year period, 78% of these homes got caught violating regulations for emergency preparedness. Big deal. You submit a plan of correction, and that's just about it. Pat McGinnis directs the watchdog group California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform. It's a problem because it's very seldom corrected. It repeats and repeats and repeats, and we see it every year, and we see it with the same facilities. KQED also looked at the severity of the violations. Just 6% of the time, evaluators considered deficiencies bad enough to require a follow-up visit in person. McGinnis says if you're missing an emergency plan, that's not even labeled an actual harm. We really need to have an oversight agency that gets out there, tries to find problems in advance of the tragedies. You know, how serious is this? 
how many residents could potentially be affected by this and how severe is this violation. And of course, we don't do that. Last fall, federal auditors criticized California for its oversight of emergency preparedness at nursing homes. They said the state should offer more training and inspectors should visit facilities more often. The California Department of Public Health rejected those recommendations, saying it doesn't have enough staff or resources. CDPH denied our request for a taped interview and did not respond to written questions. You picked a good day to come out. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, sir? Okay, you? Okay. In February, I met Ray Bodowin at the Sequoias in Portola Valley. It's part of a small group of care homes. Bodowin is the director of facilities and a former fireman. Bodowin says it's rare to get through inspections with zero problems, but being without a comprehensive emergency plan? Yeah, I think that that's pretty serious if you don't have an emergency plan. I don't really understand how you can even get licensed. Being prepared is a huge capital investment, he says, especially now. Bodowin's plan is so big it has cheat sheets and color codes. For example, you know, we have code silver for active shooter, code yellow for bomb threat, code pink, the missing resident, which is always an issue. And then we have code beige, which is for mountain lion. A pandemic is in there too. He says the three facilities he oversees have been in an emergency for months. They use the same management style police and firefighters do. One commander with clear responsibilities for everyone below. You can see the body language from the staff. They're worn out. I mean, this has been an active situation since late February. It's, it's kind of like a war. You know, it doesn't go away. None of his facilities have yet found COVID-19 among patients. You know, I am still knocking on wood. But if uh, fires come, Bodowin says the pandemic will complicate evacuations. Be smaller groups. And force them to be more spread out. It's going to be more of a campground style. Bodowin says he might have to move residents as much as 100 miles away from home. Because I have to worry about air quality. The residents may have a compromised immune system. They may have respiratory issues cardiac issues, so I've got to get them in a safe zone. The trade group representing most nursing homes in the state, the California Association of Healthcare Facilities, offers training and templates for emergency plans. But the state has suspended routine inspections during the pandemic. And critics say state and federal policies do little to encourage preparedness. You need to be able to hit them where it hurts. Pat McGinnis argues the state should levy more fines and even block nursing homes from admitting patients. And that's not going to be in their hearts. That's going to be in their wallets. Violations almost never cost a facility money. The California Department of Public Health rarely issues fines. When they do, facilities can appeal. I think the regulatory structure in nursing homes desperately needs to be changed. That's Mike Wasserman, a gerontologist who used to run a company overseeing 70 nursing homes. Now he leads a reform-minded group, California Association for Long-Term Care Medicine. Wasserman says issuing fines doesn't touch the actual problem. Nursing home real estate owners are today's slumlords. He argues that owners limit their financial liability with webs of corporations, different companies for property, for operations, for management. That makes fines just a small cost of doing business. You can just ask yourself where that's going to end up from a quality perspective, where that's going to end up if there's a fire, where that's going to end up if there's a pandemic. And we're seeing the results. He says the state should demand more transparency about corporate ownership. Without it, the people who suffer are the patients and their families. COVID-19 outbreaks are overwhelmingly common in California nursing homes. 
Where they're at risk for fire, more than half of skilled nursing facilities have reported cases of the virus, too. They include Randy Odette's 96-year-old mother, who is recovering from COVID-19. She's just like 80 pounds and um, just sleeps, sleeps all the time. The facility where Betty Odette lives, Astoria Nursing and Rehab Center, has reported over 140 cases of the coronavirus. 25 people have died. Infection control, infection control. These are all separate complaints. Randy reads a list of active and proven complaints since the pandemic began. Facility staffing, pressure sores, oh, infection control practices not followed. God bless, man. Randy took care of her mom for a decade before finding Astoria on the edge of the San Fernando Valley. Now she lives in an RV parked on a wide street near the same steep hillsides that threatened the facility. She was born and raised here. She knows fire comes without warning. The mountain is dry, <laughs> pretty dry up there, but that's California. Randy asked the administrator about Astoria's emergency plan. He's supposed to let her see it. He pointed her to a sign on the wall, like what you'd see at a Motel 6, showing where the emergency exits are. The state has got to be responsible for these homes. Now she's scared and a little angry. I mean, they can't help themselves, the patients, and it's really not up to the staff. Odette believes the staff at Astoria didn't pay attention to COVID-19 until it was too late. She fears the same will be true when a wildfire comes. Nursing homes are obligated to protect their residents from disasters, no matter how frequent they are or how often they overlap. Right now, we can't really be sure they're all doing that. That was science reporter Molly Peterson from our partners at KQED. San Diego News Matters is a daily morning news podcast powered by all of the reporters, editors, and producers in the KPBS newsroom. Tune in to KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or KPBS Evening Edition at 5.30 p.m. on KPBS Television to keep up with the news throughout your day. You can also find us on Twitter at KPBS News or to find our podcast producer, Kinsey Moreland, she's at Kinsey. And as always, you can find more KPBS podcasts like Only Here or Cinema Junkie on our website at kpbs.org slash podcast or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.